was a crime so shocking, so unimaginable, that it left much of the country speechless. Early on the morning of April 19, 1995, a disgruntled U.S. Army vet named Timothy McVeigh, filled with hatred for minorities and resentment of the country's leaders, set off a massive truck bomb outside the Alfred E. Morrow Federal Office Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168, injuring more than 680 others. 19 of the dead were children, most of whom, including four infants, were attending a daycare center for the federal workers inside the building. In the days that followed, reporters and editors at Newsweek magazine were among the first to notice that this crime, up to that moment the worst act of domestic terrorism in the country's history, bore a chilling resemblance to one that was graphically detailed years earlier in a lurid underground novel called The Turner Diaries. Written under a pseudonym by an eccentric former physics professor and neo-Nazi named William Pierce, the book had become a near Bible for white supremacists and anti-Semites. It described a race war that tears the country asunder, triggered by an effort orchestrated by Jews, of course, to take the guns away from law-abiding Americans. In response, white Christian patriots fight back and set off a truck bomb outside the FBI building in Washington. As soon as I heard what happened in Oklahoma City, I just had this gut reaction, one student of the paramilitary right told Newsweek. It's straight out of the Turner Diaries. The Newsweek story proved prophetic. It was soon learned that inside McVeigh's escape car was an envelope containing excerpts from the Turner Diaries. It was graphic evidence of how lurid, racist, and anti-Semitic writings can inspire horrific hate crimes, a lesson well worth remembering in the aftermath of the slaughter inside Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue. It's our subject on this episode of Buried Treasure. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Uh, you know, Danny, I, I still vividly remember our reporting right after the Oklahoma City bombing and becoming aware for the first time of this obscene novel uh, called the Turner Diaries and reading it, it's sort of, you know, the the imagery of African-Americans right out of scenes from Birth of a Nation, the imagery of Jews as conspiring, orchestrating all this behind the lines. And some of the details that uh, we laid out in that story, uh, it all begins with something called the Cohen Act. Uh, a law passed by a Jewish member of Congress to eliminate private ownership of firearms, and then uh, jackbooted federal agents going door to door, seizing weapons from law-abiding Americans, and then white Christian patriots go underground to fight back, and then end up bombing the uh, J. Edgar Hoover building, the FBI building in Washington, D.C. 700 people die. This is in this in this novel, and uh, one of the uh, terrorists calls up the Washington Post taking credit, saying, white America shall live. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, it's been a while since I've thought about it, 
but uh, hearing about what took place at Tree of Life Synagogue last Saturday and the uh, screeds of uh, Robert Bowers on his social media accounts uh, talking about how Jews must die and he's going to save the country from uh, some Jewish conspiracy to bring immigrants in, it did uh, immediately bring back uh, those uh, chilling words from the Turner Diaries. Yeah, there are just eerie and disgusting uh, parallels um, that we see between happened back when Oklahoma City took place and Robert Bowers now. And it is part of this dark cycle of American history that, uh, you know, despite the progress, which is undeniable, um, there are still these deep strains in this country of racial hatred and anti-Semitism. And the historian Richard Hofstetter uh, wrote in a famous essay in 1964, The Paranoid Style of American Politics, these kinds of vile conspiracy theories about our fellow Americans are always lurking beneath the surface. And then for whatever reason, from time to time, they bubble up. Um, And I think we're seeing another one of these bubbling ups. um, And it's very scary stuff. There's some really we talked about some really important parallels here, but there are also a lot of uh, differences. You talked about the the Turner Diaries, you know, that book being passed around. You can imagine some dog-eared copy of the Turner Diaries being passed around to, uh, you know, members of these uh, Aryan white supremacist uh, neo-Nazi groups. Look, you go on the internet now, and there is the equivalent of the Turner Diaries, you know, everywhere you look. And so the proliferation of these kinds of views and the the kind of uh, echo chamber uh, of the of social media platforms allows people like Robert Bowers to be connecting with other like-minded racists and anti-Semites um, and always you know being a you know the, the, who affirm uh, their basic beliefs and embolden and empower them and right. it's scary right right and you know talk about the political climate is interesting because it was a pretty scary moment in the 1990s as well this was the era of the militia movement in which you had these sort of right-wing crazies convinced that uh, there's some dark federal plot to take away their guns uh, to uh, assault them in various ways to suppress them and they're arming in you know out in the woods training for military confrontation with law enforcement and Add into that uh, the other striking parallel, which is the flourishing of conspiracy theories. Um, I went back and looked at that Newsweek story uh, that I worked on. Tom Morgenthau was the master craftsman in New York. The great uh, Morg. Yeah. The great Morg. Loved yeah. him. Uh, a great wordsmith uh, for our copy. And um You know, one of the things that he talked about was how the militia movement in the weeks and months prior to the Oklahoma City bombing were on high alert with numerous messages passing among them warning that the ATF and selected U.S. Army units were training at Fort Bliss, Texas for a massive raid against militia members. Uh, And of course, there was absolutely no basis for this, but this 
this conspiracy theory had taken root. Now cut to today and Bowers, where he seems obsessed that Jewish groups, this Hebrew immigrant uh, society in, in Silver Spring, Maryland, that uh, tries to bring in uh, immigrants and refugees from other countries, were somehow plotting to um, bring in hordes of immigrants through the caravan. And uh, he whips him into a frenzy. And and, uh, you know, what does he write? Uh, H-I-A-S, that's that Hebrew immigrant society, likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. Yeah. And this is all happening at a time, days before the midterm elections, where immigration and the dark specter of of refugees and immigrants uh, pouring over our borders and the infamous caravan is now being talked about all the time. And look, our president, Donald Trump, talked about there being unknown Middle Easterners as part of this caravan. And others have talked about George Soros, the uh, billionaire Jewish uh, Holocaust survivor from Hungary funding uh, the caravan. Those are all, you're right, that these kinds of conspiracy theories have taken root and had an you know, important effect on people on the fringes for a long time. There's another key difference between then and now, I think, which is that for whatever reason, these kinds of conspiracy theories are being normalized and mainstreamed by conventional politicians. And, you know, it starts with the president of the United States, who I guess I would not call a conventional politician, uh, but certainly has a, an enormous bully pulpit. And then it filters down to members of Congress and other politicians and you just see you know, more and more of it, and that has to have an effect on people. Look, I was thinking about this over the weekend because I was kind of channel surfing, and I see an ad, you know, all these ads in the New York area and all over the country now for these campaign ads, and I see an ad. Uh, it's the 11th district in Staten Island. The incumbent uh, is a Republican named Dan Donovan. The challenger is a a Democrat named Max Rose. And Dan, this is a very short spot. Dan Donovan is, is uh, talking about, the ad's talking about uh, Max Rose as uh, someone who's part of Nancy Pelosi's radical left. Then all of a sudden you're seeing dollar bills behind him. And at the end, the tagline is, uh, Max Rose is not one of us. Well, guess what? Max Rose is Jewish. He also happens to be uh, a uh, veteran of Afghanistan, 1st Armored Division, and a uh, recipient of the uh, Bronze Star um, and other military awards. But when the tagline of one of these ads is, he's not one of us, what does that say? He is the other. Who, can I, can I ask you a question? Who ran that ad? Was that the Donovan I, campaign itself? I, be, I, have to, I, I, gotta, I, I believe it was. It could have been a pack, uh, but, but either way, this is a... An ad being run in in New York City, right? Uh, you know, the largest Jewish population yeah. in the country, one of the largest in the world, and it seems like it's appropriate to run an ad like this, which right. is, goes to my point I about say, the kind of mainstreaming of this kind of awful, you know, hate. Yeah, look, not to excuse that for one second, I'm a little surprised only because Donovan, the little I know about him, isn't he like a you know, fairly respectable former prosecutor in Staten Island, not exactly a fringe guy like Stephen King in Iowa or something. So it, it, exactly it, my point. Yeah. You know, it's the dog whistles that have become acceptable. Right, right. 
But look, look, I'm going to push back a little bit because the climate in the 90s was to a more than limited extent um, fueled by some of the rhetoric you were hearing at the time. Look, the phrase jackbooted thugs to describe federal agents, uh, ATF agents primarily, that was something that uh, Wayne LaPierre, you know, then as now was out there, uh, you know, the executive vice president of the NRA fanning the flames. And I think, as you pointed out, when we talked out before, actually, it didn't, that phrase did not originate with him. It, it originated with John Dingell, uh, you know, respected longtime Michigan Democrat, but also a big NRA supporter. In fact, it originated with John Dingell all the way back in the early 80s, I think okay. 1980 or, or 1981. Also, you know, there were members of Congress that were fanning these anti-government flames. We remember the congressman from Georgia, Bob Barr, I think sure. his name was. Yeah. Um, and he also was going after the ATF and the FBI. And we both covered Ruby, the standoff at Ruby Ridge, right. um, in which Randy Weaver was killed. So uh, this does forget, go. Don't forget Waco, uh, a uh, law enforcement misstep by both ATF and the FBI that had tragic consequences. Uh, children burned down. We were killed in the burning of the Waco compound of the Branch Davidians. So that that fueled these conspiracy theories as well. There were you know, real events uh, that uh, that fanned the flames. But none of that, of course, uh, you know, justified this sort of. And of course, there was a there was another important element back in the early 90s, uh, particularly after Bill Clinton was elected. First of all, we were coming off a, a deep recession in George H.W. Bush's administration. And that kind of economic hardship often fuels hatred, paranoia, and particularly anti-Semitism. Also, remember, this was a there had been a bunch of school mass shootings at the time. This was this was at a moment where there were a lot of debates about gun control. And uh, it was only, you know, I think it was 1994, but this was being debated earlier that uh, the assault weapons ban was introduced. Right. And so that was hugely emotional for a lot of people. They thought that the, it was the government, you know, taking away their guns, taking away their freedoms. You still hear some of that as part of the way people talk and some of the kind of paranoid uh, conspiracy theories. But the right has kind of won that battle at this point. Gun control legislation never right. passes. So uh, so guns are not really the proxy for some of this kind of hatred. I think it's much more direct now. I think it's people going after African-Americans and Jews and Muslims much more directly. And if you're, you know, and it happens right. to, you know, you're on the Internet, if you're on Twitter, you know, you're going to get attacked um, if you're if you're Jewish. Yeah. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. Sure. Yeah. No, I when I look at my Twitter feed every so often, some blatantly anti-Semitic uh, uh, tweet pops up. I don't know. You know, these are not people I follow, but somehow they find me and there it is. But look, if there is a small positive side to all of this, and that's hard to uh, even think about in the wake of uh, what took place in Pittsburgh, there is a backlash that inevitably occurs. Let's go back to that um, 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, in 1994, the Republicans swept the election, uh, got back control of the House for the first time in decades. The rhetorical excesses of some on the uh, right wing of the Republican Party was seen as 
part of the fuel that led to the Oklahoma City bombing. And if you want to sort of trace the resurgence of Bill Clinton, who looked in very bad shape in, in 1994 in the aftermath of the House uh, uh, elections uh, in which the Democrats got clobbered, I think you can probably trace it to uh, the horror that people felt uh, when they saw what took place in Oklahoma City and who was and behind it. And that brilliant moment when Clinton went down to Oklahoma City and presided over the memorial service down there and was the comforter in chief. And basically the message was after the Gingrich revolution, the message was government is still important. We have your backs. When it comes to the security of the country and uh, bringing people together, ultimately that is uh, a role that a president can play and government can play. It was a, uh, an important shift at the time. And I think, you know, we may see the same sort of thing after these horrific events. And that's what I was referring to as, you know, these cycles of uh, these dark cycles of American history. It comes and it goes. I I am not sure that President Donald Trump can play that role. In fact, I'm understating it there. It's pretty clear he can't. And it's also pretty clear he doesn't want to. Just look at the tweets that have come out from him since the the Pittsburgh shooting. And uh, once again, as recently as today, and we're speaking now on Monday, he's blaming the mainstream media for this. Uh, saying it's their fake news that's uh, causing these problems, not taking any responsibility. And, and this for is himself, and this so. is something that the people of of Pittsburgh intuitively know. And it's really extraordinary to see citizens of Pittsburgh saying we don't want Donald Trump to come to this city. I saw the former president um, of the synagogue on CNN uh, saying, uh, in my opinion, he's not welcome because he is a purveyor of this kind of hate speech. And that is an extraordinary thing because in these kinds of horrible, tragic moments, the country used to, we all remember what happened after 9-11, the country used to unify. We used to rally. There was a kind of a rally around the flag, rally around the president. Uh, Not anymore. I'm not saying it can't happen again. I'm hopeful. I think it will, but it's not happening now. I think uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And to the extent to which there will be a backlash against this and uh, a dialing back and a fear and a consensus that the kind of rhetoric, polarizing rhetoric we've been hearing from this president and this White House and in this political environment, look, we're going to have an election next week and, um, you know, we will see to what degree uh, this turns voters off. I just want to say one last thing, because for policymakers and for uh, people in the private sector, one of the big, really big challenge going forward is going to be how do we deal with this kind of hate speech on social media platforms and on the internet more generally? Because it's a very dicey thing, obviously, uh, you know, free speech. Um, and there can be, if, if you crack down too hard, then people end up moving to some of these more marginal, mar- marginalized sites, like the site that uh, Robert Bowers was on, which has uh, just become a kind of gab. And, and so the New York, I was struck by an editorial in the New York Times, which clearly was caught in this dilemma, what do you do? And their response was, well, you can't really crack down on speech. You just have to balance it out, balance bad speech out with more good speech. And that just goes, I think, to the sort of impotence um, as a society that we are experiencing right now. It's going to be very difficult to deal with this.
And I just want to actually close on a, on a, on even you know more down thought than that, which is you always learn stuff about what uh, goes on in the uh, psychotic minds of uh, racists and anti-Semites, just as I learned about the existence of the Turner Diaries after Oklahoma City to learn, as I did in the last couple of days, about the 14 words, 1488, which is uh, a, a number that apparently Bowers was putting on his gab sites and referring to. It means that 1488, it's not an actual reference to a year back in the Middle Ages. The 14 is the 14-word slogan of a racist guy named David Lane, who headed the order, one of the groups that was out there in the 1990s. Those 14 words were, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. And the 88 stands for Heil Hitler, H being the eighth letter of the alphabet. Oh, God. What do we do? Yes. I think we just should close it right there as a sort of chilling reminder of the the, uh, demented minds among us. Thanks for listening to this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you on Friday. <laughs>